Good morning once again. My name is Ben. I'm the music and ministry coordinator here at Christ Church, if you don't know me. Um, and it's my privilege this morning to be able to share God's word with you. Um, at this point, I'll invite you to, to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide. Um, or if you have uh, your Bible with us, you can turn to Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Um, today is a bit of a unique Sunday because last Sunday, Christmas Eve, we finished our Advent sermon series. We wrapped it up. And next week, we'll actually begin a new sermon series looking at the book of Zephaniah. But this morning, as we finish off our year together, we're just dipping our toes into Romans chapter 5, just for a moment. Paul's letter to the church in Rome is centered on the work of Christ and the gospel. In the first chapter, Paul tells us that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone, to everyone who believes. And it's this statement then that he unpacks throughout the rest of the book. In our, in our verses this morning in Romans 5, we see a picture of just how powerful and far-reaching this gospel is as we encounter the incredible sacrificial love of Christ. It comes, the sacrificial love, not to whom we expect or how we expect, but it comes at the right time, just as God intended it. And so I'm going to invite Brittany forward. Brittany's going to read for us our passage. But before she does, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as another year comes and goes and a new one begins, that you and your word are unchanging. We thank you that we can continue to trust in you and believe that you continue to speak to us today. By your spirit, help us to hear your word now, to understand it, believe it, and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1991, Heritage Minutes, these 60-second short films, each illustrating really important moments in Canadian history, began appearing on Canadian television and even Canadian radio. One of these Heritage Minutes depicts an event that, that happens, that happens sorry, not very far from where we sit this morning, and that's the Halifax explosion. Halifax, as you may know, was a busy wartime port city in 1917. The First World War had been underway for three years, and the Canadian people had been exposed to injury, death, and hardship. But for Halifax, it actually brought prosperity. After decades of hard economic times, the city was a hub of Canada's war effort, with one of the, the finest, deep and ice-free harbors in North America. Halifax was the port through which tens of thousands of Canadian, British, and American troops passed through on their way to the battlefields of Europe, or on their way home. It was also a base for Navy vessels and merchant ships from around the world needing repair or resupply. On the morning of December 6, 1917, two of these ships 
a French and a Norwegian vessel, they collided in the harbor. The French vessel, uh, the Mont Blanc, it, it was filled with explosives, and the sparks from the collision caused a fire to break out on board. This spectacle, this ship on fire, attracted the attention of people on shore, including many children on their way to school, and it drew many residents to their windows, hoping to catch a sight of this ship on fire. Few people at this time understood the imminent danger. Now, Vincent Coleman, he was a train dispatcher who worked at the uh, Richmond Depot in the north end of the city. Coleman got word of the seriousness of the situation. He was one of the few people at the time who, who understood the incredible danger that much of the city was in. But Coleman, rather than run for his life, he sent frantic messages trying to stop a train full of passengers headed for Halifax. He wouldn't leave his post until he knew that his message had been received and that the train had stopped. Eventually, the train did acknowledge Coleman's message, and several hundred passengers were saved as the train stopped short of the eventual blast zone. But by then, it was far too late for Coleman to flee the blast. As a kid, I, I remember seeing that Heritage Minute often as I watched TV. And I'll be honest, it, it was hard not to get choked up, even at a commercial. Vincent Coleman sacrificing his life for innocent train passengers was and is incredibly courageous and inspiring. Now there are, are many more incredible stories throughout history of similar sacrifice. And, and even if you look at popular culture, movies and, and literature, we see this idea over and over again. One person sacrificing their life for the good of another. Whether you're here this morning as a Christian or maybe someone just exploring the faith, I think we can all agree that these types of stories, both historical and fictional, are attractive. There's something in us that's drawn to them, that, that leaves us uh, amazed, or if fictional, desperately wanting it to be true, to be possible. Why is that? What is it about these stories, these types of stories, that draws us in? Well, I think it's that we want to be loved in this way. We want to know love where someone would willingly give their life for ours. We want to know love where someone would fully and completely put our needs above their own. We want to know true, deep, lasting love and live in a world where such love is plentiful. Well, here in our text, Romans 5, 6 to 8, we have another picture of incredible, sacrificial, awe-inspiring love. But this love, this story, this picture, is unlike any other story. It far surpasses any other historical or fictional account, and, and like, unlike so many others, it directly involves us, everyone here this morning, we're part of the story, and so it's worthwhile for us to spend some time in these verses, seeing what this incredible sacrificial love is all about. And so we're going to look at this, at this picture, at this story in three parts. The necessity of God's love, the surprise of God's love, and then the certainty of God's love. So that's the necessity of God's love, the surprise of God's love, and then the certainty of God's love. 
First, the necessity of God's love. At the beginning of our text, Paul is telling us something about the kind of people that Christ died for. This is what he says, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And then again in verse 8, while we were still sinners. So in these three verses, Paul actually has three words to describe the type of people that Christ died for. Weak, ungodly, sinners. The first word, weak, in this instance, it's not primarily speaking of or describing a physical weakness. Rather, it's speaking of a spiritual or a moral weakness. We might use the words of powerless or, or helpless. Right? In this context, it's telling us something about a person's inability to save themselves. Adam Clark, an 18th century theologian, he explained this weakness as neither being able to resist sin nor do any good. It's utterly devoid of power to extricate oneself from the misery of their situation. The second word, ungodly, speaks not only of disobedience to God's commands, but opposition to God himself. Right? People without either the worship or knowledge of the true God. And more than that, actually, people worshiping something else. So much so that we could describe them as, as enemies of God. Right? This is not a, a moral slip-up here or there, or you know, maybe just ignoring some of those pesky little commands that you don't like. No, Paul is speaking of enemies of God, people living in opposition to him and serving another God. The third word, sinners, in some sense combines these two words. As one commentator put it, Paul is referring to impious people, refusing to worship the God who created them, while living and loving contrary to his holy character and his commands. People who have deviated from the way of God and exposed themselves to all the miseries of sin. And so three words, weak, ungodly sinners. People who have clearly rebelled against God and in pride and arrogance gone their own way. Living in opposition to him, thinking that they know best. These words that Paul uses are... Uh, are strong. He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't hold back. He, he paints a grim picture about the kind of people that Christ died for. And maybe if you're here today and this is, this, is, this is new to you, you might ask, who are these people that Paul is talking about? Who are they? Because they, they sound terrible. They actually sound unlovable. And here this morning, this is the bad news. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, describes all of humanity in this way. Weak, ungodly sinners. People who have no righteousness on their own. Uh, Paul tells us in the first chapter uh, of Romans, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things. Paul goes on in chapter 3 to tell us just who he was talking about. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. See, all of humanity is born in sin, weak, ungodly, 
and sinful from birth, deserving of God's wrath and unable to save themselves. So then you ask, who is Paul speaking of? Paul is speaking of you and me. Paul is speaking of all of humanity and letting us know our weakness and our ungodliness goes far deeper than we could have imagined. It's more pervasive in comprehension than we thought. And if we're honest, this is terrible news because it means we're without hope and the love that we all desperately want and crave, the love that we're searching for, is ultimately unattainable if what Paul has to say about us is true. But maybe, maybe you're here and you doubt that what Paul says is true. I mean, we see lots of good things and seemingly good people in the world around us. Like, how can Paul use these words to describe all of humanity? Isn't that incredibly harsh, offensive? The reality is that, that yes, you are right, that is offensive. This is what the late Tim Keller says. He says, the preaching of the gospel is terribly offensive to the human heart. People find it insulting to be told that they are too weak and sinful to do anything to contribute to their salvation. Right? The cross is by its very nature offensive. And we can only grasp the sweetness of the cross if we first grapple with its offense. If someone understands the cross, it's either the greatest thing in their life or it's repugnant to them. Right? If it's neither of those two things, they haven't actually understood it. Right? So how can Paul's words be true of all of humanity? Well, this question actually points us back to Genesis 3, where we read of Adam and Eve's sin, the fall. As a result of Adam's sin, the entire human race fell. And our nature as human beings since the fall has been influenced and corrupted by the power of evil. The effects of the fall, they extend and penetrate to the core of our very being. It affects not only our actions, but our affections as well. Right? In other words, uh, sin isn't something we occasionally do. It, it's something that comes from our hearts. And the fall, it, it's twisted our hearts and our loves away from God. So that even the good that we do apart from Christ is twisted by our own self-serving motivations. And Paul, he, he tells us that we cannot fix this problem ourselves. We're weak. We're ungodly sinners with hearts and affections looking away from Christ. And so here's the truth. If left to ourselves, we have no hope. We can't dig ourselves out of this one. We're weak, we're unlovable, and the harder we try, the further we fall. And this, this is what it means that God's love is necessary Apart from it, we have no hope of salvation. Apart from it, there is no forgiveness. There is no reconciliation. There is no healing. There is no life. There is no love. We cannot pay the debt ourselves. The love of God in Christ is necessary for salvation. And this leads us to our second point, the surprise of God's love. Amazingly, inexplicably, God pours out his love on those who are weak, ungodly, and sinful. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul, he, he knows how crazy this is, that this is unbelievable, unexpected good news for the rational mind. That's why he explains it as he does in verse 7. Right? This is what he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
Uh, You could say a morally upright person, though perhaps for a good person, someone who's done a lot of good, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Vincent Coleman, he, he is a hero, there's no doubt about it, for saving all of those lives on that train. And yet in some sense, in some sense, we can understand his sacrifice, saving a, a train full of unsuspecting, innocent people. Or maybe you've read or you've seen Lord of the Rings. Boromir, a, a valiant warrior of Gondor, he almost succumbs to the dark power of the ring. He tries to convince Frodo to give him the ring, and when Frodo refuses, Boromir tries to take it from him by force. But Boromir does redeem himself from his selfish and evil actions by sacrificing his life to save Merry and Pippin, two little hobbits. We can make sense of that. What could be more innocent and lovely than little hobbits? But who, who would think of giving their life for an ungodly sinner? Jesus. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This, this is incredibly awe-inspiring, surprising love. This is good news. Many commentators, uh, including John Calvin, they speak of these verses kind of as Paul's version of John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this is their point in in comparing these two passages. That the good news could not be any better. It couldn't be any sweeter than what's explained in these two passages. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for people like you and people like me. But maybe you're here today and you've heard these verses before. Uh, Maybe none of this is new to you. Maybe even, maybe Romans is your favorite book. And if you're honest... If I'm honest, God's love at times feels unsurprising. It feels normal, maybe expected, or you might even say it feels deserved. Right? At times we can convince ourselves that we're more like innocent little hobbits than enemies of God. We tend to think that there is something lovable in us, that we're actually owed God's love. And in the process, while we do that, we actually diminish the incredible love of God in Christ. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus addresses something similar. Jesus, he went to dine at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and Simon was a very religious man. This is what one commentator said. Simon took great pride in his religious observance. Simon never ate unclean food. He tithed meticulously. He kept the commandments of Moses. He kept his distance from notorious sinners. But Luke tells us, as they reclined, Jesus and Simon at the table, a woman notorious for her sin throughout the city, this woman brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him, standing behind Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Simon was shocked and not in a good way this is what simon says of jesus if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is 
who is touching him, for she is a sinner. More often than not, particularly, I would say, if you've grown up in the church, we think like Simon. Thank goodness I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like those other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. Our hearts, they're so quickly twisted into thinking that we're somehow deserving of God's love, that we're owed for all that we've done, supposedly for him. And as we do this, we diminish the incredible love of God in Christ, who died not for people who have it all together, not for the healthy and whole, but for the sick, for sinners. He died for those weak and ungodly. Paul is clear, and it is offensive. (laughs) We're far from innocent. We're weak, ungodly enemies of God. We deserve his wrath and his judgment, not his love. But this is the good news. Christ gave his life for those who are weak. Christ gave his life for those who can't save themselves. Christ gave his life for the ungodly, those who smell of sin and its decay, who willingly willingly and joyfully trample on his promises, those who live in opposition to him, traitors who've rebelled against the king and have given their lives to another. Christ gave his life for people like you and people like me. Christ loves people like you and people like me. Sacrificial love, it's almost always surprising. It's not what we expect. But how much more surprising is God's love for us? We weren't innocent train passengers or lovable hobbits. We were enemies of God. And yet Christ willingly gave his life for ours. God's love is necessary and that we cannot be saved apart from it. It's surprising in the sense that it's so far beyond any category that we can make sense of. But as our third point says, God's love is also certain. And this here is really the main point Paul is trying to get across in this larger section of Romans chapter 5. Believers in Christ who are righteous in God's sight through Christ who are loved by him, have a certain hope of future glory and eternal life. God's love is certain. See, if there was something lovable in us, if there was some power within that we could muster up to save ourselves, or a list of duties we could perform to get off the naughty list and onto the nice list, God's love would actually, in some sense, be based on us and our performance. It would be based on what we can do for him. And if that were the case, we'd be left with these sorts of questions. Does God love me? Does he still love me? Am I lovable enough? Am I doing enough? And that would actually be incredibly crushing. Imperfect people trying to appease a holy God. But as it is, There was nothing lovable in us. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this, this is what actually makes God's love certain. Our certainty of God's love, our assurance of it, depends not on our love for God, or on our power, or on our strength, or our ability to pull ourselves together. No, our assurance depends on God's love for us. And that means that we can have certain hope of future glory and eternal life with him. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, 
in dying for you. Christ has taken your sin upon himself. The wrath of God that you deserved was put on Christ and the perfect life of Christ, his righteousness, was imputed to you. It was given to you so that now you can stand before God, righteous in his sight, assured of his love through this glorious exchange. The Heidelberg Catechism, a 16th century Reformed confession, it describes, it puts words to this glorious exchange, and this is what it says. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered from me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. All of our sin put on Christ. All that Christ has accomplished credited to us. And yet, that's not all. We now partake of the blessings that this glorious exchange brings. Paul describes this at the start of our chapter. We have peace with God, access into God's grace, hope of the glory of God, and joy in our trials, knowing that God is using them to develop perseverance, character, and hope. These blessings are also certain because they're based on God's love that sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. If God has loved and cherished us while we were his enemies, how much more can we be certain of it now that we are reconciled to him? It is this certainty that then truly frees us and liberates us to live as we truly ought. We can stop worrying about what we might lose and instead celebrate that in sorry, and instead celebrate all that is and all that is to come and all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Right? This certainty brings us peace, brings us security as we rest from striving, knowing that salvation is a gift from God, not something that we earn or achieve. It's the certainty that, that then allows us to live truly sacrificial, radical lives for the good of one another. Right? And seeing Christ lay down his life for our own, we're then empowered by his spirit to go and lay down our own life for the good of others. See, assured of his love, we can face whatever comes our way, whatever lies ahead in 2024 or after, for that matter. For those who trust in Christ, the best is yet to come. Eternal life, his unending love forevermore. But maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure if you are. Or maybe you're here today and you desperately craved to be loved with this sacrificial love. Or you've been searching, but everything you've tried has just led to more emptiness, more delusion and confusion. And if you're honest, it seems this type of love is out of reach. It's far away. The bad news, and again, it is offensive, is that Paul is telling you that your sin deserves punishment and there is no way you can save yourself. Your heart has been corrupted and your disposition is towards sin and against God. Apart from Christ, you're hopeless. 
Apart from Christ, there is no righteousness. But Christ has died for sinners. Repent and believe the good news. Admit that you're hopeless apart from Christ's love, deserving of God's punishment, unable to save yourself and enter into his assuring, comforting, certain love. Believe that, that, that Christ is Lord, that he is your hope and your salvation. Trust in his love, because the love of God is unlike any other love we could know. Again, the late Tim Keller, this is what he says, to be loved, to be loved but not known, is comforting, but it's only superficial. To be known, to be fully known and not loved, is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw our way. As we head into 2024, we go with the certain love of God in Christ. It's what all of us need most, more than anything. And in receiving it, it frees us to live and to love as we truly ought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible, surprising, sacrificial, certain love. Apart from it, we would have no hope. But in Christ, we can be assured of this certain love. By your Spirit, help us to live lives of sacrificial love and to share the good news of salvation for sinners with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.